Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. And what we're going to talk about today is entitled Conquering Compromise. Now, I'm just going to be clear. I want to remind you, I'm thankful Caesar reminded me of this scripture that we started with when we went into this series, which is the book of Revelations opens up in chapter 1, verse 3, saying, Blessed are those who read this prophecy, this letter aloud. Blessed are those who hear it, and blessed are those who take heart. In other words, apply it to their life. So I share that because the reality is there is some weight to the word that Christ gives to this church. But there is also great hope and fruit when we hear it, when we listen to it, and when we apply it. There is the heart of the shepherd, the faithfulness to come to deal with the compromise of this church because he longs for his people to fulfill their purpose and mission, to be a light in darkness. And I don't want you to miss that. And our heart always, as we share often, is to be a true, spirit-filled, empowered church that will do real kingdom work. And so I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. And if you don't have your Bibles, we can put it up on the screen. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. So let me just start this way. As I shared before, the church at Pergamum teaches us a valuable lesson that really can be taught throughout church history. And that is this, that although history of our church shows that we have gone through intense waves of persecution and intense seasons of external threat and opposition, the letter to this church in Pergamum and church history shows us that oftentimes the greatest threat to our spiritual health and well-being is not threats from the outside, it is threats from the inside. It is a compromise of the word of God, it is a compromise of the truth, which speaks to both theologically and morally, and we lower our standard than what God has for us. And I've found it in my life that oftentimes when the enemy can't curse you, he'll seek to corrupt through compromise. And so he came to this church to bring about a compromise. And I just I want you to hear the heart of the shepherd in this who comes to, to speak against this because he longs for them to fulfill their purpose. There's a there's really interesting. I came across a story. Uh, well, it's not really a story. It's a truth about a tree. Have any of you guys have ever heard of a, um, a banyan tree? All right. So really interesting, a banyan tree. It, uh, its seeds are so small that it can't really grow in the ground. So the way that it grows is birds take this seed and will drop it into a, a host tree. And these seeds will trickle down and find cracks or crevices in the tree in which they will then sit there. And they will begin to, to grow. And what happens is, is they grow then from the top down. And these roots come down from this seed, go looking for the soil. When they hit the soil, they'll actually dig into the soil and then begin to wrap around the existing roots. And soon, they begin to actually cut off all supplies to that host tree, and they take it themselves. There's so many roots that grow. I know this is real. Talk about a dog-eat-dog world. Trees are out there just, just killing each other out here. And so these roots, these roots go down so much so that it begins to cover the entire bark, and then their, their, their leaves grow and actually cover the leaves of the tree. So in every way, it saps out the, the life source, the, the, the energy source, the food source, 
every part of it, and over time, sure enough, the tree dies, the host tree dies, and what happens is that tree that's now underneath all these vines actually begins to rot and decompose, and, um, and banyan trees will actually be hollow from, from that tree that they once circled. And amazingly, as I was just reading through this, this is what compromise looks like in our life. It starts with this tiny little seed that seeks out a crack or a crevice. And if we do not deal with it, it quickly spreads and grows until it chokes out the life source. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves down, down the road saying, man, how did this happen? But here's the good news is that the kingdom of God also starts as a seed. So it tells us one thing, that small steps of obedience or compromise leads to these beautiful rewards or consequences. So my heart is that we would be a people that sow into the kingdom and into the spirit and not into the flesh. So real quick, here's just a quick background on this church. We understand what's going on, and then, then we'll move into it. The church at Pergamum, like all of these cities that we work through, that was deeply um, entrenched in idolatry. Um, in particular with worshiping Greek deities. And so they had many different statues to gods and goddesses. And in particular, they had one god that was known as Asclepius. Now, this was the god of health. And, uh, and many came here to receive different types of these healing treatments that was really just bathed in witchcraft. Interestingly, the coin at Pergamum had the symbol of this god. And what the symbol is is a staff with a serpent that is entwined around it. It's actually where we get our symbol for the medical field today, which made me wonder a few things of what its, uh, what its foundations are in. But, this is, but they worshiped this. They also had the, uh, the god of Zeus, and, uh, and they had this huge statue that was over 40 feet tall. I think it was actually considered one of the um, wonders of the ancient world, and, and they would come and, and they would worship these statues. And so all these statues were up on this high hill that overlooked the city of Pergamum. They also were deeply ingrained in the worship of Roman emperors. This is called the imperial cult. They were pioneers of this. They built the first statue to a Roman emperor to worship him, Augustus, in 29 BC. So this was a, you talk about being a Christian in this area, this was an extremely hostile area because it was okay to have a private faith, but if you were public with your faith and it got in the way of your allegiance to one of these Greek gods or to one of the the, the Roman emperor gods that they called them, uh, you would be extremely persecuted, even lose your life. Many cities have nicknames, right? Las Vegas is Sin City. New York City is the Big Apple or the city that never sleeps. Chicago is the Windy City. Uh, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. But uh, Pergamum's nickname was Satan City, as we'll see in this. Uh, so you talk about a place of wickedness and darkness. It's, it was known as the throne of which Satan would sit. And interestingly, Pergamum's name is actually means uh, thoroughly married. And so this was a church that was torn between two, two partners. They were called to be married to Christ, but they were teetering in the line of being not just married to Christ, but married to the world as well. And so Jesus comes with pretty strong words. We're going to look at that, pretty strong words. But I want you to see his heart behind this. So Revelation chapter 2 Let's read through this, and then we'll just kind of break it open a little bit, starting in, in verse 12. It says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, this is the words of Jesus now, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas, 
my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, this was a man that we know nothing else about. He's not in any other history books, but most likely his death was not a private one, but a public one in which it was celebrated here. But one thing that encourages me is even though he is never recorded again in any history book, Jesus knows him. Jesus remembers this faithful one. But he says this, even though they live, he knows where they live, and he commends them for their faithfulness here. He says, nevertheless, in verse 14, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So we'll come back to this in a moment. But he says it's not everyone, but there's some that hold to this, and you're, you're, you're approving of this and not speaking against it. And he says in verse, t- verse 15, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, Repent therefore, now, immediately, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Not the whole church, but the sect in there. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So let's just speak for a few moments here this morning on this idea of conquering compromise. I want to just begin, as we have with most of these letters, to see how Jesus opens this up. Remember, each of these letters, Jesus begins by confessing a certain characteristic about himself that comes from chapter 1 when John had a vision of him. And the the characteristic that Jesus references is so important because it ties directly into the message he has for that church. And here, Jesus identifies himself. He says, these are the words of, of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. It speaks from John 1, uh, Revelation 1, where John sees him, and he says when he saw the Christ, he said when he opened his mouth, there was something as a sharp double-edged sword that came out of his mouth. Here's what it's speaking to, strong words that Jesus uses. Whenever it speaks of God coming with a sword, it's this apocalyptic language of God coming as a judge, and his means of judge is the word, the truth of God. He says, I'm coming with the truth of God, the word, the sword of the Spirit. But what, what, what really caught my attention here is that, I, you know, I'll read through things like this, and, and you can, I think you can miss sight of the heart of who Christ is. But as I begin to read this, and Christ coming as a judge to deal with the compromise that was taking place here, the last few months I've been reading a lot of the Old Testament and the prophets. And if you read through, especially the minor prophets, you'll see that they'll often speak words of, rebuke and judgment on the people of Israel for their sin, but always in there is intertwined this message of hope that God is going to redeem and restore. And here's what God was showing me is that God in his faithfulness comes as judge to deal with our compromise because the whole idea was that Israel, Israel would be a place, a people that would be light unto the darkness. They would be a light into the nations. And so when they fell into compromise, Christ in his faithfulness will come to them to deal with that because he is committed to seeing us fulfill our purpose and our plans that he has for us. And so Christ comes to this church in Pergamum with with strong words to deal with the compromise because his heart is that they would be a light in this dark city. And he understands the devastation of compromise, so he comes to deal with them in order to restore them back to their calling and purpose in this place. 
Where the church settles in compromise, Christ contends for purity. This is, this is our great hope. Is wherever we settle both as a body and in our own lives, Christ comes to speak over that because he desires for us to walk in the fullness that he has for us. The enemy of great is good. Is good. It's we settle in this place and say, man, this is, this is fine enough for me. I'll stay right here. I want to speak over your life that God has great plans and great calling for your life. And compromise will come in to get you to settle in just good. But I want us to, to walk with Christ and walk with all that he has for us. This is exactly why it says, Christ says, I know where you live. This is amazing. He says, I know where you live. In other words, I'm well aware of the situation and the place that you're in. I'm well aware of the things that come against your faith. And then he says this, where you live is where Satan lives, metaphorically. I'm thinking, wow, so God called this people. That's what he's saying. I've, I don't, I'm not just aware that you live here. I've actually called you to be in this place. I've called you to be light in this darkness. And that is why I've come to deal with the compromise because I am committed to seeing you be that faithful witness and that light in this dark place. And so he comes to speak this, this strong world word. Jesus teaches us that, and this is important for you to hear, Jesus teaches us that when we live as light in darkness, you should expect to experience some friction. And I just want to speak that because some of you may find yourself in some difficult communities, some difficult workplaces, even difficult families, and you wonder, why am I here? I tell you, God has placed you there to be light in that place. And in his faithfulness, when we begin to drift and compromise, he will come and, and speak over us because we are the instrument that he is using to bring hope into that place. And then he says this, just to finish off this point, he says that, that he comes with a sharp, double-edged sword. Again, there's such hope in this because this speaks to the fact that he does not just come to speak a word of judgment. His, again, his judgment is to bring hope. The double-edged sword speaks to the fact that his word does two things. It not only convinces us of our sin, but it brings peace as well. The double-edged sword not only tears the veil to our sin, but it also tears the veil to Christ in order that we could see him. The double-edged sword not only brings, stabs us with a wound to the soul, but it also reveals the great physician to us at the same time. It not only hurts, but it also brings healing and, and hope. It not only penetrates, but it also brings promise. It doesn't just cut, it also brings a cure. It doesn't just convict, it also brings comfort. It doesn't just expose, it also brings encouragement. When the double-edged sword comes, Christ comes to speak things and also brings the healing remedy that we need if we would open our hearts to it and say, God, I receive that, God. I receive the truth, God. I'm going to allow myself to be opened up to you. And in that process, God will open us, but also heal us at the same time. It's a beautiful truth about the word of God. And also, I think it's incredible that the double-edged sword, it says that it comes from his mouth. Which to me, what's that so important is that the word is flowing from Christ himself. Which means that the word, it's a revelation of his nature. It's a revelation of his character. That's why the word is so powerful. Because it's not some abstract word that's outside of him. It's actually a revelation of who Jesus is. So to come against the word of God would be to come against the very nature of God as well. And so Jesus comes with strong words, but also great words that are saturated in hope and encouragement. And here's where the compromise takes place in verses 14 and 15. Let me read it again. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, 
so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And then it goes on to say, similar with the Nicolaitans. So here's what's happening here. I'll explain a little bit more in just a second. But Balaam, the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans are distinct but very similar in that they taught the perversion of liberty and freedom. And they basically said, you're free, so go and do whatever you want. And in actuality, they, they said it's okay to engage in these, uh, these banquets and these festivals of worship to these idols. And it's okay to allow that to lead you into immorality, in particular sexual immorality. And they really, they, they were perverting the freedom that we have received in the gospel of grace. I want to be clear on this, that it is all by grace, but the grace of God is not opposed to holiness. The grace of God is not opposed to obedience. The grace of God is the very means to lead us into holiness. It's the very means to lead us into obedience. It is empowering presence. Therefore, his freedom takes us somewhere. We use our freedom to pursue him with all that we have. So look, there's one side that says, man, you're free. Live however you want. The relativist, that's torn down. There's the other side, the moralist, who says, no, you've got to do all these things for God to accept you. That's torn down. The gospel presents a whole new way of how to relate to God. It says you could never do it on your own. And just when that's ready to bring you to despair, it says, but the good news is Jesus has done it for you, and he's given you the spirit to empower you. That means we still obey, but it's from a position of acceptance. That's the accurate teaching of where the gospel of grace takes us. A.W. Tozer says it so well. He says, look, God is looking for people that are seeking after him. Not about perfection, holy intention. Not about perfection, holy intention. God will work through the mistakes, the muck, the failures, the sin that we walk through when he knows that the heart of the man is saying, God, in all of my mess and all my brokenness, I want to honor you, God. I want to give you every part of my life. Jesus, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to settle in these places of compromise. I want to live in all that you have for me. And so here's, here's the story. Let me just share what's going on with Balaam because I think it's really interesting. If you, do you guys, maybe you remember the story. We spoke about it one time. But this was the story of the donkey. Crazy story. I won't get into the whole donkey scene. But, but here's what happened. Did I say that weird? Donkey? <laughs> so, so here's what happened is the Israelites are traveling from Egypt to the promised land. And they are just having victory after victory. And their numbers are, are actually quite large, even though they're, they're nomadic. And people are scared of them. And Moab hears of this and says, man, we can't beat these guys. So the king of Moab, Balak, summons this prophet, Balaam, to come and curse them in order to destroy them. And every time Balaam would come to curse them, all he could speak was blessings over them. And he couldn't get through. He couldn't curse them. The last time we shared the story, we stopped there. But here's what's interesting. Balaam didn't stop there. He then gets with Balak and says, look, I can't curse them, but here's what we're going to do. When the Israelites camp, let's set up Moabite tents all around their camp and have your women go in and entice them to come back to the camp. And when they come back, there'll be younger women there all done up and perfumed up, and you will have them entice them to worship the God of Baal. And when they do that, you'll also engage in, in sexual relationship with them. And sure enough, the Israelite men went for that, and they experienced extreme devastation in their camp. And so what happened was is that the enemy couldn't curse them. And so instead, he corrupted them through compromise. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, be careful of allowing things from within to come and compromise the purity and truth of God's word and the standard that I've called you to live by. And I believe in my heart 
if I could just speak boldly, that it may look different, but this, this letter, especially for our, our church, this is what the Church of America faces with more than anything. We don't face persecution like we do in other countries. Maybe it's gotten a little bit harder in some respects to stand boldly, but ultimately, it's this. It's compromised to the truth of God and what the Word of God actually says. We no longer, I can't even tell you, I go to seminary, there's some who actually question, is God, the Bible, really the authoritative Word of God anymore? I mean, surely there's got to be other truths that are just as equal with it. Surely Christ can't be the only way of salvation. There must be other means. We do it in the name of tolerance and love, but it's not love at all. All of a sudden, what's, what's right and wrong is now not determined by the universal truth of God, but by popular opinion. We've moved away from the simplicity of Jesus Christ only. Instead, we point to ourselves and our ministries rather than Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes a platform to build fame and fortune rather than to actually use it to share the goodness of the gospel. Is it no wonder that we don't see the greater things that God had promised through Jesus Christ? Because Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. He was God-centered. But now today in the church we're compromised so we can have bigger and better and have more people look at us. We don't do what only the Father does. We do what my heart desires in order that I could use Jesus to be raised up to a higher level so everyone could look at me. Every book says the seven steps to be a better Christian with the picture of not Jesus but that person on it. There is great compromise in the church today, and I don't speak that to come against, but I believe in my heart God was stirring something as I was working through this to be a church that comes back to the simple message of Jesus Christ only. Don't look at me. This building, this church, don't look at that. We want to give you Jesus. He is the one that will transform and change lives. And so we build churches on the gospel of accommodation. We speak messages that I'll do everything but actually share anything that will actually challenge you, possibly convict, and, and call you to make changes in your life. So I'll just, I'll just tweak the message just right so that I can grow a bigger and bigger church. And the church takes its marching orders from the marketplace and the media rather than from God's word. No longer walking in the purpose and plans that God has for it. And I wonder, is it no reason, is it any wonder that people walk into the church today and they say, this is no different than any other worldly institution. Its principles, its values, it's all the same. It's me first. It's, it's, it doesn't look anything like the kingdom of God. It's no, is any wonder that people walk in and walk out and say, man, why would I go there? We've lost the ability to have influence because of compromise. And I truly believe that God wants to call us to be a church that is just deeply committed to him and using his freedom to just pursue him. Holy intention. Now, let me be clear on this. I, this is not to be done. Um, we move with compassion and love for the lost. Please understand that. And this is not a call also to just completely separate ourselves from the world because Jesus teaches us that he left heaven to enter into brokenness. The kingdom of God is not a, a kingdom that's meant to be, hey, we're over here and you stay over there. No, the kingdom of God is we are meant to take the light and enter into and pierce through the darkness. But we are meant to live by God's standards while we live in that darkness in order that they could see there is something different about this, and I want it. And so I found that the reason why compromise can be so deceptive and destructive, let me just share these few things with you real quick, is number one, it never occurs quickly. So you hardly notice the change. But one day... <laughs> 
As we said with Church of Ephesus, you wake up and say, man, my heart towards Jesus is pretty cold. I I'm, I'm just, just feel distant from him. And you realize that there's been this internal compromise that has taken place. That's what makes compromise also so dangerous is that it, it's something internal. So if you were to cut me, right, and I need stitches, I would see the bleeding taking place. Or if I fell, right, if I fell off a ladder and, and I got cut, I would see the wound, I'd go to the doctor, I'd get stitches, it'd be taken care of. The thing with compromise, it would be like if I fell off that same ladder, hit myself on the side, looked around in amazement, said I'm fine, and I keep walking on, but little did I know that there's an uh, abrasion on the inside of my kidney with internal bleeding. And all of a sudden, you don't show any attention to it, and symptoms pop up, and you say, no, I'm fine, before you wake up in the middle of the night, you need to go to the emergency room. Compromise is, is difficult to see because it's slow, and also the, the, the evidence of it on the outside takes time to see. It always lowers the original standards you once held so important. It is seldom offensive because it is perceived as loving. And it eventually leads you to accept what you once rejected and even thought repulsive. And so here's what I've heard, and I believe this to be true. What one generation tolerates, the next generation accepts. And what that generation accepted, the next generation will celebrate. And if you look through the book of Kings, you will see from father to son to grandson, you will see this many times. The father starts off well but compromises late in his life. His son picks up in that place of compromise, and it gets worse and worse as it passes down through the generations. And so how do we overcome this then? There's a lot that I can share to this. I just want to speak real quickly into this before we close. Number one, I really want to this is not the main thing, but I, I always have to share this. It always comes back to intimacy with Jesus. You just can't bypass that because ultimately I will compromise in my life if I'm not truly satisfied in Christ. What happens is, is something in the moment is telling me, and I believe it to be true, that I need this more for joy, peace, whatever it is, more than I need Christ, so I'm willing to go for it. And so it really comes back to me seeing the beauty of Jesus, having my heart arrested by him once again to realize, man, Christ is all I need. And this thing, although it promises something in the moment, it truly can't satisfy. Which leads into the other thing, which is we not only need to see the beauty of Jesus, we need to see that he's good and, and his perfect wisdom. Because compromise will often come through seeking instant gratification. God can promise and say something, and I want it, and I want it right away. And so I'll go for it because what it happens is I don't trust that God's timing is good in my life. I, I, don't, I, I don't trust that he's good. I believe that he's withholding something from me. This is exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. They believed the lie that God didn't want them to eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil because God was withholding something from them. And interestingly, when Adam and Eve did that, they weren't just coming into a knowledge of good and evil. They were coming into this determining good and evil. And that is the heart of compromise is when we say, God, I know you said this is right and this is wrong, but I'm going to redefine what is right and wrong based on how I feel in this moment. And we need to trust the beauty of Jesus. We need to see the beauty of Jesus and trust in his goodness and his wisdom in our life. But here's the main thing I want to share with you as the tangible thing to walk away today is that we need a recommitment to the word of God. It's that simple because what happened here is they were drifting from the truth of God. And we need to be a people as disciples who are bathing ourselves in the word, reading it. And here's the beauty of it is that when we read the word, it's not like physical hunger that when you get full, you're done. The more you read the word, the hungrier that you get because you realize how rich and good it really is. 
And if you look throughout history of the Bible, you'll see this incredible truth. Let me give you one example. Josiah. Josiah was a king, and when he came to reign, there was absolute wickedness in the land. And when Josiah came to reign, this incredible story takes place. He says he sends officials into the temple, and they are cleaning the temple out, and they discover the word of God, the book of the law, little excerpts from Deuteronomy. For whatever reason, they didn't have the word. And they were living crazy at this time. And, and Josiah reads this and says, oh my goodness, this is what it says, and this is how we're living. He tears his clothes, calls a fast, and says, man, we got to get back into the word. Nehemiah does the same thing when they come back from exile. He calls the people in the public with the priests reading the word. Jehoshaphat, when they were deeply ingrained in sin and he came to reign as king, one of the first things he did was he raised up priests to go to household to household to read the word to the families. The book of Acts is split up in different ways. One way is six segments that is based on entering into new regions. And the way it enters into a new region, it would always start with, and the word of the God, and the word of God spread. In other words, revival is always pioneered by a recommitment to the word of God. And so if we are to experience a personal revival in our hearts and a church, it takes a recommitment to say, God, I'm going to read this word. I'm going to take it as the mirror that it is. And I'm going to respond accurately to what it says, knowing it's a double-edged sword. Not only will it convict, but God, you are going to bring comfort in that. And so I'll close with just these last two things here. In the last verse, verse 17 says this. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The worship team can come back up as I just close here. There are two beautiful truths I want to leave you with right here. He speaks first, and Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, the one who walks with me faithfully, he says, he says, listen, he says, I will give you access to hidden manna. And that's, so, that's a, such a rich statement because here's what I think. When we, when we walk with God and we look around what's going on, we could think, man, am I missing out on something? And I need this thing to be satisfied the manna, the manna was the way in which God had provided miraculously this food in the Old Testament for the Israelites. It was called bread from heaven, and God had released it. And, and it really wasn't, it wasn't about the bread. It was about that God, by his presence, was sustaining them. And it was a picture that the ultimate fulfillment of the manna would be Jesus Christ himself. He would be the true one that will satisfy hearts. He's called the bread of life. And what Jesus is saying is to the one who walks with me, to the one who commits himself to me, he says, I will give you something that will truly satisfy. It is not just a calling to a future end time, although it is. It's speaking to something in the now. Jesus says, you will get manna that no one knows about. You will have a source that will sustain you, that will satisfy you, that will fulfill you. And this, this manna doesn't keep you bound. It feeds you and sustains you to liberate you, to set you free. Jesus is basically telling us he's the true treasure. He truly is the pearl of great price. And he says, if you walk with me, walk with me faithfully, he says, you will have this lasting satisfaction that the things of this world can't give. What a great promise to receive the hidden manna. And then it says this. He says that we'll receive a white stone with, our, uh, a, white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is a great uh, speaking to the blessing, future blessings 
Now, there's been a lot of interpretation as what do these stones can mean. I'll just share two that I think are probably most likely the case, and they're really rich. The one is, in this culture, you couldn't come into certain banquets and feasts without receiving a stone from the person. That was your ticket of admission. And so when Jesus says, if you walk with me faithfully, don't compromise. Walk with me. He says, you're going to receive a stone that's going to allow you into the overcomer's banquet. You will dine with me forever for eternity. And he says, I promise you, it's more worth it than anything you can go after in this world. The beautiful truth of what Jesus says with the name of Christ on it. But the other thing is that sometimes they, in the court of law, they would give out stones. And if you were guilty, they'd give you a black stone. But if you were innocent, they would give you a white stone. And when it says, Jesus says, listen, walk with me, be faithful with me, and in the end, you will receive a white stone declaring your innocence declaring your freedom from the second death, and you will live with me forever. A glorious and beautiful truth. It reminds me of Colossians 2, which says that when we were dead in our sins, Christ forgave us. And then it says he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus himself, as he hung on the cross, the Gospels say his accusation was held above him. He was the professed king of the Jews. And therefore, every accusation that's been put against us, every crime we've ever committed, it's been washed away because he went to the cross and received the ultimate accusation. He took our punishment. He took our pain. And therefore, we have new life in Jesus Christ. And so I urge you to hold on to him because he's holding on to you. Don't deny him because he'll never deny you. Walk with him. Walk with him no matter what it looks like. Jesus wants you, and he truly is the satisfying bread of life. So I'm going to ask you to stand right now as we close right here. Come on, just these last few minutes here. Let's let our hearts respond to the word of God. Pastowitz. He has great purpose and plans for each and every life here. I thank God that he's the one that won't let us settle in places we have no business settling because he desires that we would be light. said in this, he said, you didn't deny my name. You know, there's this incredible truth that blew my mind. He says, you didn't, you didn't renounce my name. Many times we talk about salvation being when you come forward and you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? It's so much more than just saying a prayer. And as I was reading through it, I found out that oftentimes when you would enter to city gates, the Roman officials would stand on the outside and before you could enter in, they'd say, pledge your allegiance to Caesar. Is Caesar Lord? And people would have to bow their heads and say, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians, when they'd come up to those gates, they would bow their heads and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And the moment they'd bow their head, it was not uncommon for them to be beheaded right there. This was a call of these men said, man, we know the cost. We know it's at stake, but we want Jesus. And so I'm just going to pray for us as a body 
And then as we just close in worship, I'll dismiss us. But if you want prayer, we've got a prayer team up here. If there's something that, man, you just feel like God is speaking to your heart, I'm just going to ask you, don't leave without responding. Let someone pray for you. I believe God, like we, like we said about in worship, God wants to break chains over people right now. So, Father, I pray right now for this to be a breeding ground for the miraculous. I pray for an anointing on the prayer team right now that as they lay hands, God, that you would set people free. God, I pray that you, in your loving shepherd voice, with that double-edged sword, God, that we would allow our, our hearts to be open to you, knowing, God, that, Jesus, you have good intentions for us. And I just pray right now that as a church, God, that we would be known as a church that walks faithfully with you. And so I lift up every, every runner in this room who's trying to run from you and live in secrecy. I pray they would hear the voice of this shepherd who knocks on their door today and tells them that, open it up, I want to dine with you. I pray, God, for just a releasing, God, a releasing of more of you in every life here. I pray for an unveiling of your beauty, of your goodness, a trust in your wisdom. God, I pray that we would grab hold of the freedom we have and let that lead us, lead us into holiness with you, God. Lord, I pray that you would just stir the hearts of your people, God, to respond to your word. And I pray it in Jesus Christ's name. Thank you for listening to Home Church's podcast. To go deeper into the message, text DEEPER to 66866. If you would like to give to this ministry, you can text the amount to 631-693-4176 or visit us at myhomechurch.org backslash give.